So good to sing of the faithfulness of our God. Today we will see how God supernaturally worked to reiterate his desire to bring salvation to the nations. The problem was up, up till now here in this book of Acts, we've, we've, we see a strong gospel movement for sure. You've already covered it earlier in the year, in the early chapters of Acts. God sends his Holy Spirit. The people come to faith. Acts 2, as well as even some in Acts 4, describe an amazing church, don't they? A church devoted to each other. Devoted to teaching, to fellowship, to eating together. Praying together. And they see signs and wonders and growth. Certainly the description of an amazing church, no doubt. I've heard it said to me many times over the years, we need to be an Acts 2 church. And again, we've talked about descriptive and prescriptive, and that certainly moves from descriptive into prescriptive, doesn't it? But I ask you, could there be a problem with that? There's a lot of verses to cover today, so we'll certainly be done by 2 p.m. In other cultures, that would be a short service, by the way, so it won't be that long. Look with me now at the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 10. I'm going to just kind of cruise through the first 23 verses to set some context. So look with me at Acts 10, verse 1. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the poor, and prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. He stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. Now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him. And having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. He became hungry and wanted something to eat. So while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance, and he saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending and being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air, and there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time, What God has made clean do not call common. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. Now, while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he had seen might mean, Behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate and called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. 
And while Peter was pondering the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. And Peter went down to the men and said, I am the one you're looking for. What is the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man who is well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. So he invited them to be his guest. The next day he rose and went with them, and some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. So we've got this Cornelius, uh, a man who feared God, a Gentile, from Gentile territory, prays and has this vision to send for Peter. The next day, for Peter, God can so easily orchestrate these kinds of things. Peter has a vision. He's hungry while in a trance-like state. Now, I don't know if any of you can relate to that. I wouldn't want to admit if I get into a trance-like state when I'm hungry. But anyway, sees this vision of unclean animals and is told, kill and eat. I love this. After this vision is over, I love it. It says, while confused about the vision, the Spirit speaks to him. So he has this three-peat vision, and then the Spirit just speaks. We read that Peter does go, and some brothers from Joppa go with him as well. Cornelius invites others to be present when Peter arrives. He sees Peter. He bows down at Peter's feet to worship him, and Peter wants none of that. Here are the two of them meeting. And Peter declares, God has told me not to call any person common or unclean. Now, how's that for a greeting? You go into somebody's house, and the first thing you say is, hey, I'm here because God told me not to call you common or unclean. But they would have understood that culturally being Gentiles. Cornelius then goes on to explain why he sent for him and declares, now, therefore, We are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. Cornelius wants Peter to speak and to share this. I want you to notice that that as it continues, both of them explain their supernatural visions. It's an obvious uh, sign how they're aligned together. What a scene. I want us now to focus in on Peter's message to them. So move ahead with me, if you would, to verse 34. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly, I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he has sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, He is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Israel with the Holy Spirit and with power. And he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are all witnesses of that he did both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, 
not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. What an incredible statement to start with. Truly, I understand that God shows no partiality. I think that it is likely that this is really a, a new understanding for Peter, or at least a deeper understanding. Him saying, I truly understand that God shows no partiality. It's a big, big statement in a time when there was such partiality. Could Peter even believe for himself the words that were coming out of his mouth? I imagine that statement being made maybe with a long pause or with a tear sneaking out of one of Peter's eyes. Massive statement. I've had multiple occasions in my life to visit individuals either in jail or prison. It's an interesting process just to make the visit. You have to show your ID and prove who you are and kind of be authorized by that particular inmate. Then you have to lock up your possessions in a locker, go into a room and have the full pat-down to make sure you're safe. And then you get escorted into either a large room where there's multiple gatherings or locked into a small cell with the inmate you're visiting. I share that only to have you imagine this for a minute. Imagine entering into a prison and passing through gate after gate to enter, enter into a cell block of those who are serving life sentences without the possibility of parole and being able to stand there and say, today I declare to you that freedom is for the taking. You can have freedom now, this moment. I'll suggest to you that when we grasp how amazing Peter's proclamation is here, when we realize that it it carries that kind of weight, ultimate freedom is now freely given. It meets your greatest need. You may want to push back on that illustration and say, well, that's not a great comparison. I'd suggest to you that it is, but let me present another scenario. I know many of you have traveled and perhaps you've gone to other countries, but maybe you go to to where the tourist locations are or resort cities. But if you've ever gone on a mission trip and you've gone in and you've seen great poverty, real poverty, where death and disease is all around, you can smell it in the air. People are desperate for food and for survival parts of Mexico, Haiti, areas in Africa, and so on. I will never forget being in Mexico and watching little children running in front of an active dump where they're running in front of the bulldozer searching for food before it runs it over. They're in front of it. They're behind it. They're all around. And I remember thinking, why in the world is that, is that operator not stopping 
because the children around and the people that were guiding us there were saying he can't because it never stops. Children get run over so desperate for food or something to sell. Imagine being able to go into a scene like that and and just be able to proclaim good news. I want you to know there's one whose wealth is without limit. And he wants to invite you into his family. He wants to make you his child, an heir to his wealth, to inherit all the blessings of being in his family. I share those two illustrations just to suggest that the statement that Peter was making was so freeing to the Gentiles. Just like for for the Jews, the restrictions have been lifted. No more hoops to jump through. No longer are the Gentiles to be a secondary class of people. All are welcomed in now. It was no doubt freeing for Peter himself who lived with the belief that he was better than the Gentiles. Was taught to be cautious around them, to avoid them if possible. Yet he's introduced to a different way when he follows Jesus, right? Jesus has them travel through Samaria. Finds out that Jesus talks to a Samaritan woman. Jesus heals the centurion's son. Jesus tells the parable of the good Samaritan. Then he commissions them to take the gospel everywhere, to all nations. So here's Peter in a Gentile home, proclaiming freedom and welcome for all. It's not about nationality anymore. The door is open wide. So, the more you know about Scripture, you know that, wait wait a minute, this raises questions. Why why was it the Jews first? Why why was there this delay? Even the words of Jesus as He sent the twelve out, He instructed them in in Matthew 10, verses 5 through 7, Go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel and proclaim as you go, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. How are we to reconcile this in our minds? Why did Paul say that the gospel brings salvation to the Jews first and then the Gentiles? Romans 1, Paul writes, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of, for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, also to the Greek. You see, the gospel is intended for everyone. However, it's first offered to a Jewish nation. Deuteronomy 7 tells us that the Jews are the chosen nation, set apart as God's people. I like what the late Wearsby wrote about Warren Wearsby. Through the Jews, God demonstrated his love and holiness to the world. Theirs is the adoption to sonship. Theirs is the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple and worship and promises. Theirs are the patriarchs. From them is traced the human ancestry of the Messiah. 
It was through the seed of Abraham that all peoples of the earth will be blessed. That promised blessing came through Jesus Christ, as explained in Galatians. Jesus was born as a Jew under the law, fulfilled the Jewish law perfectly, and died as a once-for-all sacrifice on behalf of all who would put their faith in him. In his public ministry, Jesus spoke of being sent to the Jews, and he focused his effort on them. He was the Jewish Messiah, and he had come in part to strengthen Judah and to save the tribes of Joseph. On one occasion, Jesus seemed to rebuff the pleas of a Gentile woman, though he later helped her. Jesus predicted that the repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in Christ's name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. The gospel of the kingdom was to be a blessing to the whole world, but it was natural that it be first proclaimed to Israel. When Paul speaks of the gospel bringing salvation first to the Jews in Romans 1, he alludes to the special relationship the Jews had to the Messiah. The Christ was the son of David, and the hope of the Messiah had long been held by the Jews. So when the gospel of Christ was first proclaimed, the Jews had priority. We see this prioritization in Paul's first missionary journey. Every time they would come to a new city, Paul and Barnabas would preach in the synagogue to the Jews in that city. In Antioch, they were so opposed to the unbelieving Jews that the missionaries said, we had to speak the word of God to you first. Since you rejected it and do not consider yourselves worthy of eternal life, we now turn to the Gentiles. The persecution in Antioch continued. Paul and Barnabas were eventually expelled, so they went to the next town. There are several important things to note about Paul's statement that the power of God in the gospel brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. First, God did not cease giving Jews, uh, or saving Jews in order to save Gentiles. In all his missionary journeys, Paul continued to preach first in the synagogues, and God continues to desire the salvation of all the world. Second, Jews are neither better nor worse than Gentiles. All need a Savior, and in Christ, all are on equal spiritual footing. Colossians 3 reminds us that we have put on a new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge and the image of its creator. Here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian or Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. The believing Gentile just, is just as welcome in the family of God as the believing Jew. The Jew who has come to faith in Jesus is just as secure in his salvation as the born-again Gentile. Finally, salvation comes the same to both the Jew and the Gentile, to everyone who believes. Jesus is the only way of salvation, regardless of one's heritage. Paul said, I have declared to both the Jews and the Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus. Israel was to be a priestly nation, to lead the way, and they didn't do that well. Now a new time has come. Peter sees it now. Truly, I understand that God shows no partiality, 
but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. Now, we've got to be careful with a phrase like that, because fears and does what is right uh, might want to suggest to you in your mind that it's meritorious or it's on your merit. We're not earning salvation. We are saved on the merit of Jesus Christ and his alone. Fear signifies this belief in. Do, it says our behaviors then would align with that belief. So it's this genuine life-altering faith. Peter then takes Cornelius and his guests through the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I want to point out something to you. It's amazing. It is the same gospel. No additions, no modifications. Peace through Jesus, Lord of all. John baptized him. The Holy Spirit came upon him. He healed. He cast out demons. And they were saying, we witnessed this. We saw it. The Jews killed him, but God raised him on the third day. He appeared to us. We ate with him. And he commanded us to preach. He commanded us to testify that God appointed him judge over the living and and the dead, that he was the one that the prophets had spoken of. The same gospel to the Gentile and to the Jews. And you know what? It's the same gospel for you and I today. Do you know it? Have you embraced it? Have you come to faith in Jesus Christ? The next portion tells us that the Gentiles were clearly coming to Christ. Look at verse 44. While while Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus. And he asked them to remain for some days. Here we have yet another fantastic moment where the Lord displays even more of his power. I want you to think about it. If it wasn't convincing enough to have these two different men in two different places have aligning visions, and God supernaturally directing them both, how confirming, right? When God does that, My wife and I have had multiple occasions where God was speaking to both of us separately about the same subject. And then when one of us brings it up, it's like, wow, what a neat moment. Here, here, that's what was happening in in this case. Now, even as Peter delivers this gospel message to the Gentiles, the Holy Spirit is coming upon them and making his presence known. One after another, they're coming to faith, acknowledging the truth that Jesus about Jesus and coming to faith. And as they do, the Spirit comes upon them in a way that all can see. It's an obvious, obvious sign so that, so that these Jews have to go, wow, clearly they are with us. 
There are various kinds of testimonies. Just even in this room, were you to give your testimony about coming to faith, and I hope you have, uh, you would have all different uh, types of stories being told. Growing up in the church, or growing up with the knowledge of it, or maybe you grew up somewhere else and you heard some basic ideas in a church, but it was confusing to you, and then at some point you heard the gospel. Maybe some of you can't even pinpoint a date or a time because you just kind of grew up with it. I grew up in a Christian home. I was taught about Jesus very early in life, and it really wasn't until my late middle school, early high school years where I really started to say, do I believe that which I've been raised with? Others of you may have a more specific testimony, moments where it just became real to you or something happened at some dramatic point in your life. You can just imagine these, these, these new Gentile believers going and telling their story to people who weren't there, who, who weren't there in that moment. And they're saying, listen, as this man Peter explained the gospel, I sensed that God was calling me. And it was very clear to me that Jesus was who Peter declared him to be. And I remember thinking, yes, it's true. Jesus is the Messiah. And I need to confess my sins to him and declare him to be my Lord. And then suddenly... Weird things start to happen. I was praising God in languages I didn't even know. Look at verse 45 again. And the believers from among the circumcised, the Jews that were with them, who had come with Peter, were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. Remember verse 23 told us some brothers from Joppa came with Peter, these Jews. They're amazed. They're looking at this the outpouring of the Spirit upon them, and they're saying, wow, the Spirit even comes on the Gentiles. You hear that thought in there still? These are the unclean, the common, right? How could it be? How could they possibly be experiencing that? What an incredible ride these people are on. They're witnesses to Cornelius bringing Peter over, claiming that an angel made him do it. To Peter claiming that God showed him three times in a vision that dirty stuff is actually clean. And Peter saying that unclean people should no longer be called that. And then these Gentiles believe and get the same spirit that they have. The playing field has been leveled and the door is open wide. Peter has seen clearly enough evidence and, and so he states to these, these who are there, can, and he, he presents the question in verse 47, can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who've received the Holy Spirit just as we have. Baptism. Notice a couple of things. Baptism is a response to faith. In a few moments, you will hear a faith story and, and witness a baptism. It's a response to faith. You know Jesus, I hope you've been baptized or plan to. I want you to note here, just for clarification, that these Gentiles come to faith and receive the Holy Spirit prior to baptism. I want you to notice the order there. But if you remember early in the year, when, when we're in chapter 2, Peter's first sermon, in chapter 2, verse 38, it says, And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. 
just a caution here that we cannot build our theology on one lone statement or verse and assume that every statement speaks of a sequential process. It's important. What we can be clear about is that the Holy Spirit comes to genuine believers or followers of Christ at conversion and does not require any outward indication. God was clearly using this occasion and the obvious reality that the Gentiles were welcomed in to usher in a new era. The passage marks a significant turning point in the history of the church. The door is now opened wide. Before I wrap up, I want to take just a minute and jump back to the descriptive and prescriptive comments that I started to make last week and this morning as well. There are certainly unique things happening during this gospel season. Things are changing rapidly. God desired here to prove that the Gentiles were also invited. Now let's go back to the Acts 2 church for a minute. Was there anything wrong in the Acts 2 church? Were they disobedient? in doing any of these neat things. Remember all the list, right? Devoted to each other, teaching, fellowship, eating together, prayer, and signs and wonders were happening. Was there anything wrong? Is that a good prescription to say, we need to be an Acts 2 church? I think we got to go back to the theme verse of Acts. Acts 1.8. But you'll... Receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem. If the verse stopped there, then we could go, wow, that's a good prescriptive church, isn't it? Be my witnesses in Jerusalem. But what does the verse say? The verse says, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea. Now we've got Lydda, Joppa, and Samaria. Uh Uh-oh, now we've got Caesarea. And to the ends of the earth. What was Jesus' great commission? Go and make disciples of the Jews. Was it? No, he said, go and make disciples of what? All nations. So here we have this amazing Acts 2 church that we hear a lot about, and and certainly wonderful things they were doing, things that certainly are descriptive and prescriptive. But could we suggest that there was a problem? They were staying there. Could it be that the persecution we saw rise up in, in, in the later chapters, after, especially after Stephen, is God's way of scattering the church because they're hanging out right there with each other. They're comfortable with each other. Now let's get radical here, and maybe we should desire to be an Acts 10 church. A church that says, we're going to make disciples of all nations. It's food for thought. I know some of, the, some of you will be riled up by that. I encourage you to wait at least a week before you email me. <laughs> Pray about it and think about it. 
Let me wrap up with a couple of comments. There's freedom found in the truth of the gospel of Christ. I hope you know that. There's freedom found in the truth of the gospel of Christ. Salvation is available to all. Do you believe that? Do you believe it? It crosses cultures. It crosses race. It crosses economics. Finally, have faith that the Lord can and will work out his plan for his glory. Amen? Jesus paid it all. He opened the door of salvation wide. And someday we will join a choir of the redeemed from all nations singing praises to our God. What a day that will be. Would you join me as I close in prayer? Heavenly Father, there's so much we see about you and your character and your word. And Lord, we can't begin just to even scratch the surface of who you are and how worthy you are of our praise, of our adoration, of our devotion, of our attention. Father, we gather today because we recognize that there is hope for a hopeless world. That there is salvation. And it's in the name of your son, Jesus. Father, we thank you that you open the door to offer freedom. To call us your children that we would share in the inheritance of our Savior. Lord, it's mind-blowing to consider. Father, I thank you for the good news. and Lord, I pray that each of us will know it and cherish it in our own hearts and that we would be your children through faith. And that we wouldn't be content with that, that we would be ones who would share the good news with those who need to hear it with a lost world that's confined in sin and starving for truth. Father, we thank you for your son, Jesus, who paid it all, who opened the door and invited us in. Lord, we come before you with our praises, and we just say thank you, and we do so in the name of Jesus, our risen Lord and Savior. Amen.